If you didn't grab an outline through the door on the right-hand side, you will find outlines. Those outlines should have the majority of verses I will use unless I start adding stuff by memory. Uh, let me say first, I'm so glad to be back. Uh, you wouldn't think that not speaking for a week and a half publicly would, uh, would be hard, but for me it is. Uh, and so I'm definitely glad to be back. As we were driving on vacation, had a lot of time to think. Uh, you may have noticed I haven't posted much on social media, but that doesn't mean that I haven't been on there. Uh, I get on social media quite often, and as I'm on social media, I look at articles and bulletins, and I'll, I'll go to websites. Uh, and so I began to contemplate a number of things throughout this week, and one of them was this. I was contemplating about how it is that congregations oftentimes die, or how it is that they become weak, or sometimes how it is that a congregation becomes completely unfaithful. And oftentimes, the process really begins with individuals within those congregations. Now, there are some times where that's not really what happens. Sometimes you'll find congregations predominantly made up of older Christians, where a lot of the younger Christians that were there, they have... They've just simply moved away, and slowly over time, for whatever reason, the, the church has not grown. Oftentimes it's because maybe they're not doing evangelism, but it's not always because the congregation is in error or individuals are in sin. But predominantly, as I began to contemplate and to think about all these issues within congregations, it usually begins with the individuals within the pew. But here's the thing as I began to think about that. Unfaithfulness can be prevented, and usually that is the issue when congregations begin to veer off into whatever the issue is at hand. And so let's go on over to 2 Peter. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 there. Peter really, if I had to give a synopsis of what he's talking about here, Peter is trying to show us that maturing in our faith is a process. Now this process oftentimes will overcome a number of those issues that we deal with. So follow along with me, 2 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity, or that word there is love. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Let me pause for a second. How many of you guys have ever known a Christian who's gone back to the world? And that's really the passage that Joe read this morning, Second Peter 2, verses 20 through 22. They have... They've gone back to their wallowing in the mire, right? They forgot these things. He goes on, Wherefore, verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. 
Well, I told Sam as I began to work on this sermon, I started it on uh, whatever day it was, and I said, I don't even know if this will work. And I started it really from one thought. Actually, it was from something many of us have heard. How many of you guys have heard the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? That's all I started with as I began to think about this. How is it that these congregations and these individuals, how did they get to this point? Many of them maybe didn't really think about this old saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And in these last days of the church age, we have been warned about being pulled back into the course of this age. And what I'm talking about is, is the fact that the world is so different and the beliefs are so different than what we as Christians are told to believe and to think. And yet it constantly is pulling on us, trying to get us to come back and really to accept those ways or to even, to even start to allow those to infiltrate into the church and act like it's okay. Well, we've been warned about this, and so we need to really be thankful of the preventative medicine that we have for backsliding or for really falling in completely into error. Let's notice first that every Christian is warned against falling. Now, I have to thank Brother John who spoke while I was gone here. He actually spoke on this topic uh, while I was gone. <clears throat> Uh, actually, the uh, title was, Can One Lose Their Salvation? And if you didn't listen to that, go back and listen to that. As Christians, we have been warned against falling or against losing our salvation. Now, go on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now, many of you have probably never noticed this. And I want to point something out very interesting that Paul tells the Corinthians after I get a drink of water. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, notice what he tells the Corinthians. And I would say most people read this and they have no idea what he's talking about. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Let me pause. Most of you guys recall where the, the water stood up and they escaped, right? They went through the sea there. He goes on, And they passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now you may be saying, now wait a minute, uh, this isn't, this isn't uh, really regarding us as Christians, right? This is about the Jews. Why is Paul telling these Christians to go back and to not be ignorant about what these Jews did or what they were doing? Well, Paul is simply reminding them, and this is a type that we have going on here, and I don't have time to talk about types and antitypes, but Paul is simply reminding them of the Israelites who had escaped the Egyptians. They had been saved by water, and then they were on their way to the promised land. Now, I'll touch on that here in just a second. But here's what's interesting. After he tells them they had been saved by water, and they're on their way to the promised land, he begins to then to go on and tell them in all these areas where the Jews began to sin. Now, let's skip on down to verse 11. Verse 11, he says, Now all these things happened unto them. These, uh, this is a type, right? All these things happened unto them for examples, for in samples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now why is Paul reminding them of this? Christians have been baptized and they are on their way to the promised land, heaven, just like these Jews had been baptized and were on their way to the promised land. And like every Jew, every Christian is being warned, 
you could fall. You could sin such as these Jews did, and you would be displeasing to God. That's what, simply what Paul is trying to get them to understand. He's using a past example to show them. All of that stuff that we read about in the Old Testament, that's for our learning. Paul's saying, what did you learn from this? Listen to Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I'm not sure how it is that you deal with people when they're in sin. But Paul points something out here. He says there's a way that you need to approach this person to restore them. And you need to do it keeping this in your mindset. It could be you. You could be the one who also would fall to this type of temptation. Now, it's interesting as I still began to think about all this, and, and I was reading through some different articles, it's funny how people are constantly warning our, our younger people or the newer Christians to watch out for these danger, dangers, right? And, and that's true. But what does Paul show us? Paul shows us that every single Christian has been warned by example. And you may say, well, I mean, is, is it really that great of a concern? Guys, when we go back to the Old Testament, who can we start to name? Who we find that was engulfed in sin? We could look at people like David. We could go back and, and look at, we could look at even, for example, Peter in the New Testament. We could look at men who were considered great men of the faith, and yet we see that they fell to sin. And if it could happen to them, it could happen to us. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to understand. He wants them to understand that we have all been warned against this falling. <clears throat> but here's what we also need to understand. Every Christian is weakened before the fall. I think sometimes people think that sin just, sin just pounces on us and we just all of a sudden sin. That's not really what we usually find taking place. Let's go on over to James 1, 13 through 16. James begins to give us an understanding here. <clears throat> he says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Verse 16, listen to this. Do not err, my beloved brethren. What was James trying to get us to understand? No Christian plans to fall into sin. That's not normally the goal of the Christian. And as a matter of fact, most Christians know what, what is sinful to do, uh, and they know what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. But for many sins, the individual they find it very easy to control themselves. What I mean is, is this. It, it doesn't tempt them as James talks about, or it doesn't draw them away. And when I say that, what I mean is, is uh, it hasn't tempted them or drawn them away yet. Or it's not appealing to them. Let me break it down in a much simpler way. I would say that there are probably a lot of Christians here today who probably are um, not tempted to go out today and to get intoxicated or to go out and to do drugs, or to go out and to rob banks or individuals, or, or any of these other things. I would say the majority of us, we're not tempted in those things. And then I began to think, though, there are sins which do tempt each of us individually, and the sin that might tempt me is different than the sin that might tempt you. 
And so James makes this very personal as he talks about sin enticing one and drawing that person away. Now, if we were to do a survey on what caused people to leave the faith, what sin or what issue, we would have a number of issues that caused people to leave the truth. And that's what James is trying to show us. This is an individual thing. One of the things I've also found over time is, is you've got Christians who think they can go and participate in a sinful activity and that it, it's not going to cause them to leave the faith or that it's not going to uh, cause them to be engulfed in sin right away. And oftentimes that's true. How many of you guys have ever noticed, let me break it down simpler. How many times have you ever noticed where a Christian, where you attend, they're faithful for a long time and then you begin to see that the seat next to you is empty just once in a while. Maybe they're only missing once, once a month initially. Uh, maybe it's only on Wednesday nights. And then before you know it, it's, it's every Wednesday night and it's oftentimes more than once a month on the Lord's Day. And then before you know it, you even forget that they're not there. And when you look over at the empty seat, you really don't even, you don't even wonder anymore where they are. Oftentimes it's a very gradual process. Individually, we are each tempted by our own lusts. And then when we give in to that desire, whatever it is, and we choose to sin, it brings forth death. And so James makes it very simple as he begins to point this out. He says, brethren, don't err. What a simple message, right? What a, what a simple thing to think about. And that takes me back to what I was thinking about as I began to work on this. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? We can't allow ourselves to be weakened. And knowing that we can fall and being prepared in advance would save us a lot of heartache and suffering for each of us individually and even for those within our family. Now, we know that all sins can be repented of. And I have to say that for somebody who's watching this and maybe thinks they're too far gone. You're not. You're not too far gone. Any sin can be repented of. But even though I say that, if we could avoid falling to sin altogether, we could avoid the heartache and the troubles and the consequences that are attached to those sins. And so we have this understanding that unfaithfulness, it can be prevented, but we also have an understanding that every Christian is weakened before the fall. And every Christian is also offered a way to escape the falling. I think for many they struggle with this, and I honestly don't know why, and yet at the same time I do know why. Let's begin to break this down a little bit. Let's go on over to Jude chapter 1, 20, verse 25, 20 through 25. And notice what we learn here. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion. Let me pause for a minute. That's one method. That's a biblical method right there. How do we appeal to those who are in error? How do we appeal to those who are struggling with sin? He says, of some have compassion, making a difference. He goes on, verse 23, and others save with fear. Let me pause for a minute. I think oftentimes you'll find this approach for many people, and the Bible makes it very clear. You have two approaches. Sometimes you find people that only use one approach only. That's the only approach they think you should use. And sometimes you find people that use the other approach only. That's the only approach they think that you should use. The Bible shows us there's two different approaches. 
Guys, that's going to depend on the person. It's going to depend on the degree of sin that they're involved in. It's going to depend on their type of personality and attitude towards the fact that they're in sin. But these are the two approaches we have. You know, you've got, you've got churches today that only want the loving, soft sermon. And then you've got the congregations maybe that preach a little more hellfire and damnation. When was the last time you guys heard a hellfire and damnation sermon? I don't know that I've given a really good hellfire and damnation sermon. That doesn't appeal to everybody. Sometimes it's the sermons of compassion. Sometimes you need those hellfire damnation sermons. He goes on, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God and Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and and ever. Amen. Temptation is going to happen for each of us individually as Christians, and there isn't any way to escape these different trials and temptations that we have in life. But here's the good news. We've been given a method to overcome these struggles and these temptations, these issues that we deal with. Let's go on over to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul, this is where we started off beginning with Paul addressing the Corinthians. Notice what he tells them in verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Let me pause. How many of you guys have ever heard somebody say, why is, why is God doing this to me? Or they have that idea of, I'm the only one who's ever had to deal with this. Guys, all of those issues, we've all had to deal with them. Maybe not to the same degree, and maybe not near as much, but we deal with things like death. We deal with personal hardships. We deal with family issues, family struggles, marital issues, marital struggles. We deal with all of these different things, and it's because all of these issues, they're common to man. It's not just you. He goes on, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Now, there are an awful lot of different sins and temptations and trials that we deal with, but guys, let me ask you a question. Do you want the truth on how to escape whatever temptation or trial it is? Going over to John 17, 17, you'll learn His Word is truth. And His Word talks about all these. Remember when He said all those things that the Jews did? These are examples for you? The Scriptures point them out. They show us where they, other people have fallen. They show us that we could fall to the same type of issue. And the Bible tells us how to deal with each of those different types of temptations or those struggles. Guys, the sin isn't simply in being tempted. It's yielding to the temptation. And God's way to escape this falling, this going back to the world, or this being involved in sin, whatever you want to call it, it's a constant reminder of sin and then preparation in dealing with whatever that issue is. Let's go on over to Ecclesiastes 12.1. Here you have Solomon. Solomon, who was the wisest of the wise. And notice what he says here in Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember now thy Creator in the, day, in the days of thy youth. Let me pause. How hard do you think it is to sin if you would walk around all the time thinking about God? If you walked around all the time thinking about God, and you began to think about the judgment that comes upon those who die in sin, and you began to think about the reward or the grace given to those who die faithful, how difficult would it be to go out and to be involved in sin? Solomon says, Remember now the Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. 
I thought a little bit about this, and actually I think I had a small discussion on it. Each of us are susceptible to sin, and it is often true that the younger generation or even the newer Christians maybe struggle the most with certain sins. But here's one of the things I have noticed as I have gotten older, and I think it's predominantly true. As we get older in our faith, many of those sins, they're no longer appealing to us, and for a number of reasons. And I'm going to talk about that here in a few minutes. There's something to be said about wisdom. And yet, no matter our age, no matter whatever it is the issue is that we're struggling with, we've been given all that we need to overcome, whatever that sin or that trial or that temptation is that entices us. Let's go on over to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 16. Notice what Paul tells the Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against the flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. If we wait for temptation and struggle and trials to arrive before we begin to prepare for it, we may very well fall to whatever that issue is. Our way of escape is offered through today's preparation for tomorrow's temptation. Again, if you're prepared for something, it goes back to that saying that an ounce, of, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If we are prepared for whatever that temptation is, we know how to deal with it. What's I'm, what am I saying? Let me break it down very simple. Know the Word of God and be on the lookout for sin. It's really that simple. I think that would probably be the most simple sermon you could give to anybody. Know the Word of God and be on the lookout for sin. And if you do that, you've got a way to escape this falling. Well, so far I've been focused solely on the Christian and backsliding. Let's go on over to Galatians chapter 5, because as I was thinking about this ounce of prevention, I began to think about Galatians 5, because I want to focus on an issue here and really a question. And this goes together uh, with the very first topic. Galatians 5, let's, let's read verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me. Notice what Paul tells the church there in Galatia. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, Whosoever of you are justified by the law. Let me keep this in context for anybody watching this. He is talking about going back to the law of Moses. I have to say that because you've got people that will come here and say, we're not under law. Yes, we are under law. We're under the law of Christ. We're under the perfect law of liberty. We could go on and on. He's talking about the law of Moses. You had those trying to bring Judaism into Christianity, and people were, go they were falling back into this. He says, whosoever of you are justified by the law, the law of Moses, ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, 
but faith which worketh by love. Then he asks this in verse 7. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Man, I'd love to ask that for the people who are not sitting in our pews today. You did run well. Who hindered you? That's a great question. And as you ask that, some may begin to ask this. Well, then what exactly is obeying the truth? And who exactly does this apply to? Well, in context, Paul's talking to Christians here. He's simply talking to Christians here in the book of Galatians, and they've turned from truth to error. They literally were dragging back in the law of Moses and incorporating it, or trying to, into the law of Christ. Now, I hope not, but I suspect as I begin to talk about this that there may be some here today, maybe some watching this online. Let me say this first. I haven't heard anything about anybody. But there may be some here today that are just like this. They are, they are slowly turning back to air, right? Nobody sees it. They look at you and they think they're faithful. They don't know what you're involved in throughout the week. They don't know what you're thinking. And it's very possible there may be somebody here that's, that's just, just like the church or these individuals here at Galatia. They are falling back and they're, they're indulging in sin. And so they're not obeying the truth. And they may look like they're fine, but they're not. And yet, as you begin to ask this question, who did hinder you from obeying the truth. It doesn't just apply to Christians. This applies to those who've obeyed the gospel, but it also applies to those who have not yet obeyed the gospel. Let's go on over to 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18, and I'll show you that. You've got people actually teaching that, hey, if you've never become a Christian yet, the law of Christ doesn't apply to you. Guys, that is not true. That is not true. This applies to everybody, whether you are a Christian or if you have not yet obeyed the, the gospel, this applies to you. This is the standard that we're all going to be judged by, John 12, 48. And so when we talk about what hindered you from obeying the truth, this involves Christians and non-Christians. Listen to 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18. And Peter asks a very logical question here. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God. Let me pause for a second. They're not obeying the truth. Remember the question, who did hinder you from obeying the truth? Here's people who have not obeyed the truth. They haven't obeyed the gospel of God. Verse 18, And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Guys, here's a very logical question. If even the righteous are called to judgment, what is going to be the faith of those who are disobedient, either because they've not obeyed the gospel or because they've not remained faithful to the gospel. Who's Peter talking about? These are people that stand outside of Christ. Right? They haven't put their faith in Jesus. They haven't turned from sin. They haven't confessed Christ. They haven't been immersed in water for the remission of sins. They're not walking in the light. These are people that are lost in sin. And again, I hate to say this, but there may be some sitting here this very morning who meet the exact same conditions. They know the truth. They know what to do. But they haven't yet obeyed the gospel. Something has hindered them from obeying the truth. And then you have to ask the question, well, what? What has hindered somebody from obeying the truth? Sometimes it's a what. Sometimes it's a who. 
Well, let's talk about both of those real quick. Let's talk about the who. Sometimes the who is our friends. Now, I'm not going to go back and, and cover this chapter. I'm going to take from an account over in 1 Kings 12. Most of you are familiar with this account. But if you go over and look in 1 Kings 12, what you're going to find is, is you've got Rehoboam who went and he asked the elders who were advisors to his father Solomon. And he asked them for some advice. Remember I told you there's something to be said about wisdom. Oftentimes the older, they know what they're talking about. You know why? Because they've been there. They've done it. It's, it's oftentimes where I've done something and messed up. Yes, guys, I have messed up a lot of times. And someone will ask me for advice and I'll tell them. And then they look at you like, like he knows what he's talking about. There's something to be said about wisdom. And Rehoboam goes to these advisors of his father, and he begins to ask for some advice, and they give him some very good advice. Then he goes over and he begins to ask his younger friends for some advice. Now, I know you find this hard to believe, but they gave him bad advice. They gave him bad advice. And he actually took the advice of his friends, and you know what happened? He literally lost the people and the majority of the kingdom because of it. Let me point something out, especially for our, our younger generation here, but it applies to us, because I know for a fact this, this has even happened to me. Just because it sounds good, and just because your friends might agree with it, doesn't mean that it is good, sound advice. It doesn't mean that that's maybe the path that you ought to take. And you may have been hindered from obeying the truth because you were instructed or, and or you were influenced by wrong information. How many of you guys can admit that you have at one point been given wrong information? I'm going to hold up both hands. It's happened to me. And it's not just happening to me. It's happening to other people in pews. You wonder why congregations become weak and maybe they drift off into error. Oftentimes it's because they get bad information or they're influenced to believe and or to do wrong. Guys, friends can hinder us from obeying the truth. And we need to know that. We need to prepare for that, and we need to prevent that from happening. Sometimes it's not our friends. Let's go on over to Matthew chapter 10. Guys, sometimes it's those that we love the most. Sometimes it's our family. And guys, let me say this when we talk about family. Sometimes our spiritual families here at the church are closer than our actual physical blood-related families. So when we talk about family, it may not just be your physical blood family. I consider you family. It may be your spiritual family. And notice what Jesus says as He warns us. Think not that I am come... This is Matthew 10, 34-39. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Let me pause for a second. Can you even have a... You even have the mindset, or can you believe that a father might disagree with... Let's, let me just make a topic up. How about baptism? you believe that a father would disagree with his son on not only the, the mode of baptism, but the importance of baptism? My father doesn't agree with me on the mode of baptism or the importance of baptism. He's a Catholic, just like I was a Catholic. And I could read him the verses. And guess what? There is a sword that comes down between him and me because I have to do what the Bible says. Why do we have division in families? Jesus didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. He goes on, And a man's foes shall be, of their, uh, shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Now, we don't choose our family, and neither can we abandon our family, and we never give up on them. And yet, at the same time, we can't allow them to cause us to lose our soul. So sometimes it's our family that's a hindrance. And I began to think about a certain account. Most of you probably are fairly familiar with Job. If you are not familiar with the Job, with the account of Job, I urge you, please go back and look at the account of Job. And Job, when you think about how he was struggling, he had lost his entire family except for one person. He had lost everything that he ever had in life. He's literally sitting in a garbage dump with a piece of pottery scraping the boils off of his skin. And the only person he has left of his entire family, his wife, comes up to him. And notice what she says in Job 2.9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thy integrity? Curse God and die. I didn't write the verse down, but he goes on and says, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women. You know what she's telling him? She is literally telling him, Curse God and go kill yourself. Curse God and go kill yourself. This is how bad off you are, Job. Guys, I would hate to think that any of us would be hindered from obeying the truth or remaining faithful by a family member. But we have biblical account of it happening, and we have all seen it happen in our own personal lives. Sometimes it is our family that hinders us from obeying the truth, and we have to be prepared for that, and we have to prevent it. Sometimes it's not our friends, and sometimes it's not our family. Guess who it is sometimes? Us. It's ourself. Listen to James 1.8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Can you imagine a double-minded man that would say, yeah, that's not okay, but yeah, I'm going to do it. Or, yeah, that's scriptural, but it's not going to matter if I do it a little bit different. Or the list would go on and on. That's what we're talking about. A double-minded man. Really, it's a two-faced man, right? Oftentimes, guys, I don't know if you realize this, we're often our own worst enemy. Maybe you even know someone who falls into that category where they're constantly dealing with struggles in their lives, and guess who causes it all? Themselves. I think about myself before I was a Christian. You know who caused all the problems I ever had? It was me. And sometimes we're our own worst enemies. And so when the hindrance is ourself, the question is not necessarily who, but what? And I began to think about this. Guys, let's go on over to Acts 8.36. Most of you are familiar with this. Let's look at the Ethiopian eunuch. He has just heard the gospel preached to him. And notice, Philip's preached the gospel to him. And notice what we find in Acts 8.36. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth prohibit me from being baptized? And you know the answer to that? Just himself. He's the only thing that stands between him obeying the gospel and being immersed in water. The only hindrance was himself. And like the eunuch, guys, we're going to face decisions that will impact our eternal salvation. And often the person who hinders ourselves from obeying the truth is us. Now you may say, if it is us that is hindering ourselves from obeying the gospel, what might be the cause of that? Well, I'm going to list just a few of them and I will be done. What else can hinder us from obeying the truth, especially when we are our own hindrance? Sometimes it's a fear of failure. 
Let's go on over to Matthew chapter 25. How many of you guys remember the parable of the talents? If you don't, you will when I start to read it. Matthew 25, starting in verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thee are an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. Sometimes we do make mistakes. Sometimes it's out of fear. And we may fail in life, and we may even fail in faith. And we may even face opposition to the truth. But guys, we can't allow fear to keep us from obeying the truth. Sometimes it's not fear. Sometimes it's because people simply think they've got a whole lot more, more time than they may really have. Let's go on over to Luke chapter 12. Now, most of you probably remember the parable of the rich fool. And guys, this applies to every one of us. Whether you have money or not, the mindset applies to every one of us. Luke 12, verse 16 through 20. It says, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? How many of you guys have known somebody who focused so much on the world that they forgot about spiritual things? I've heard of accounts of people who put off obeying the gospel because they thought they had more time. I've heard of accounts of people not reconciling with loved ones because they thought they had more time. I've heard of accounts of people continuing to indulge in a life full of sin because they thought they had more time. It is extremely sad as we begin to go back and to think about this. But here's what we're learning, guys. You could die tomorrow. You could die tomorrow, and so you need to be prepared today. Sometimes it's, it's not fear. Sometimes it's not because we think we have more time. Sometimes it's simply fear of man himself. Let's go on over to Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. And I actually, this made me think about something I read just this week as we were driving in the car. I wasn't driving and reading. I was reading as she drove. Let me point that out. Because <clears throat> my app always tells me, you're not driving, right? Luke 12, verses 4 through 5. And I would never do that. Luke 12, verses 4 through 5. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Guys, this week as we were driving back, I began to read of congregations up in Canada that were forcibly shut down from gathering together on the Lord's Day by the government. They shut them down. They told them, if you come back together, guess what we're going to do? We're going to fine you or and or imprison you. And you say, well, that's up in Canada. Guys, they've done it here. They did it to us. Did we ever stop meeting? No. Come find us. We're still meeting. I'll say that to whoever's watching this. We're still meeting, right? We don't fear what man's going to do to us, what government's going to do to us. We're going to do what the Bible says. When the Bible says upon the first day of the week, you gather together to worship, we gather together to worship. 
right? The fear that we may feel due to men has to be kept in perspective. And when I say that, what I'm saying is, is being put in prison, being fined, that is nothing compared to the terror that we are going to feel if we find our, our souls unprepared in the hands of Him who is able to cast both soul and body into hell. That's what we need to be fearful of, right? Sometimes it's not fear of failure. Sometimes it's not thinking that we have enough time. Sometimes it's not fear of man. Sometimes it's love of the world. This is my last, this is my last point. Let's go on over to 1 John 2, verse 15 through 17. He says, Love not the world. Let me pause. How many of you guys have ever known someone who left the church or became unfaithful because they loved the world? That's what he's warning about here. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Guys, the world is visible right now, but heaven is unseen. And because of that, many, they focus on the world. But the world is temporary, while heaven is eternal. And how foolish would we feel one day if we bet our soul on a few minutes of sinful enjoyment in this life as we forfeit an eternity with our Heavenly Father in the next? And so we end with simply the statement that made me think about this sermon altogether. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I hope as I draw this to a close, it really causes you to think about where your standing is with God right now. And let me start off with any who are watching this who may not yet have obeyed the gospel. If you are here today and you have not obeyed the gospel, when I say obey the gospel, what I mean is, is simply obeying what the gospel tells you to do. Guys, you are in a world of hurt. As I already mentioned, John 12, 48, you're going to be judged by His Word. How does the Word tell us to become a Christian? You need to hear Romans 10, 17. You need to believe Hebrews 11, 6 and John 8, 24. You need to repent of your sins. Luke 13, 3 and 5, Acts 17, 30. You need to confess Christ with your mouth. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And you need to be immersed in water for the remission of sins. Just as Jesus states, Mark 16, 15 and 16. As Peter told the Jews, Acts 2, 38. As we learn, allows us to get into Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. As we learn, is a burial in water, Romans 6, 3 and 4, which allows us to come up and be a new creation in Christ. And that's what you find in the conversion accounts in the book of Acts. And when you do that, the Lord adds you to His church, Acts 2, verse 47. If you are here and you have not obeyed the gospel, let me put it this plain, and you die tonight, you will not go to heaven. That is what the Bible teaches. And I don't, say that, I don't say that lightly. But with some, we save through compassion. And others, we save through fear. If you die tonight and you have not obeyed the gospel, you are not going to go to heaven. Now, let's turn for just a second to the Christian. The same stands for you. If you are living in a continuous lifestyle of sin and you die tonight, you are not going to go to heaven. You need to walk in the light, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. Repent of your sins and continue to be faithful. Now, as I draw this to a close, if there are any here that we can help in a spiritual manner, you can simply come forward as we are led in a song of invitation.